today on Something You Should Know, there's something about distracted driving you don't know that could cause you some real problems. Then, you could live a lot longer if you change the way you eat. And it turns out to be easier than most people think. Within eight days, um, there's a study showing within eight days, you can so kind of reinvigorate your taste buds that all of a sudden, natural, whole, healthy foods taste good. I mean, but like even the ripest peach in the world is going to taste sour after a bowl of Fruit Loops. Also, there are two simple things you can do to improve your relationship instantly and dramatically. Plus, understanding courage and how to be more courageous in your life. So courage is acting on what is right despite being afraid or uncomfortable when facing situations of pain, intimidation, or even opportunity. All this today on Something You Should Know. Microsoft Teams is helping a bicycle company reinvent the way that they work. We make bicycles for everyday riders. Once the pandemic hit, we started doing virtual visits. All of a sudden, we could open up our showroom to customers around the world. Learn more at Microsoft.com Teams. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. I don't know about you, but to me anyway, the, the holidays just flew by this year. And, and here we are, already getting back into the regular routine again. Welcome to the program. I'm Mike Carruthers, and we begin today with this whole idea of distracted driving. Now, I, th- I think the word is out now about distracted driving, that it's not just that you hold a phone in your hand that increases the likelihood of an accident. It's any kind of distraction. Talking, texting on the phone, even eating and drinking can take your attention away from driving. But it's more complicated than that. Research from the AAA Foundation for Traffic Safety shows that the distraction time lasts far longer than you think it does, up to 27 seconds longer. In other words, you may think that it's safe to send that text while you're stopped at the red light, but the mental distraction from composing, typing, and sending the text will likely persist even after the text is sent and the light turns green, because it it takes your brain time to get back into the game of driving. At 27 seconds, traveling at 25 miles an hour, it could take the equivalent of three football fields for that distraction to completely dissipate. The researchers had participants use their voice-controlled systems in their car to make phone calls and send texts, and then they measured their reaction times to potential hazards while driving. They even tested to see that if you did more of this that you would get better, And it turns out not so, that you can't practice away the distraction time. And that is something you should know. It's amazing to me that the number one killer of people in this country, men and women, is heart disease, and that almost all of it is preventable. In fact, a lot of diseases that kill people are preventable. So why don't we, as individuals, take the steps to prevent them? A lot of it seems to be simply about eating better. Dr. Michael Greger is an MD. He's a founding member and fellow of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, and he's the author of the hugely best-selling book, How Not to Die. And he's one of the people screaming from the mountaintop that we can live better 
healthier and longer if we really want to. Welcome, doctor. I'm happy to be here. So don't you think that one of the reasons people don't eat healthier is because of all the conflicting and contradictory advice and it's hard to know what's true and things seem to change over time. So you know what? I'm just I'm just going to eat what I want. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, we've been, uh, you know, bombarded with uh, confusing nutrition messages from birth on TV and elsewhere. You know, in the 50s, the tobacco industry didn't have to convince people that tobacco smoking was good for you. Uh, they just had to introduce doubt. In fact, there's a famous, you know, tobacco industry internal memo entitled Doubt is Our Product, right? It was this PR firm saying that. So all we have to do is instill doubt. Yeah, some scientists say it causes cancer. Some say it doesn't. You know, who knows? Just throw your hands up in the air and, uh, you know, go buy some luckies. Um, and the same thing uh, with today. I mean, uh, you know, uh, you know, butter is back on the cover of Time magazine. I'm sure it sells a lot of magazines, and people love hearing, you know, good news about their bad habits. But it sells the public short. Um, but you know, classic industry tactics: so confusion, muddy the waters that people just throw up their hands, eat whatever's put in front of them. But the reality is that there's really remarkable consistency in the nutrition science literature that you know we should boost our intake of healthy plant foods like fruits and vegetables, limit our intake of animal foods, processed foods. The public you know, needs and really deserves to know about this overwhelming global consensus uh, regarding the core elements of healthy living. But but that that example right there of we should eat more. Uh, fruits and vegetables and less animal products, and yet there is a whole industry of the Atkins uh, diet of lose weight and eat a lot of uh, fat and protein, and uh, life is good again. So you've got you've got conflicting stuff right now, right? But well, but not in the uh, not in the scientific community. So actually, it was just this problem that led. Uh, uh, Dr. David Katz, who's head of uh, uh, Yale's Pre- Prevention Research Center, uh, to pull together the True Health Initiative. Um, uh, it's this uh, nonprofit entity um, that just basically got hundreds of the top nutrition researchers in the world, like, you know, the chair of nutrition at Harvard, everybody, to come together and agree to a consensus statement as to, okay, look, here's, this is really, don't listen to those commercial interests, which is trying to sell you something. Here's what the science says. People can check it out, truehealthinitiative.org, um, and see what the science says and then make up their own mind. But it's still, it's part of the noise. It's over here, you want to lose weight? This is the diet for you, and, and it may or may not have repercussions elsewhere, but it's all part of the noise, and I think people look back to the 50s where doctors were recommending cigarettes, and they think, well, maybe in 40 years from now, Somebody will be looking back at, at Michael Greger and saying, well, see, the guy's full of baloney. So, so why should we listen to any of this? You're absolutely right. Back in the 50s, the American Medical Association was telling people smoking moderation is totally fine. Most physicians smoked, but the science at the time, there was the same consensus. In fact, going back to the 30s, we had uh, the first study showing a link between lung cancer and smoking. So, um, so by the time 1964 and the first Surgeon General's report against smoking came out, they documented 7,000 studies. It took 
7,000 studies before the first Surgeon General's report against smoking came out. You'd think maybe they'd, uh, you know, uh, yeah, you know, maybe after the first 6,000 studies, it could give people a little heads up or something, right? But because of this powerful industry, I mean, it took that level before they finally um, said what was known in the medical literature for decades. And so I think a very similar situation exists today where the science is clear. Now, obviously, the media is all over the place and, and everyone's trying to hot, you know, the coconut oil sellers will say coconut oil is good for you and the you know, the egg board will say eggs are good for you, and the Pork Producers Council will say, I mean, but if you look at the science, very similar situation back in the 50s with smoking. Okay, the science is clear. It's just how that message is muddied by special interests on the way to the public. All right, so you're the dust settler. The dust is settled. So what do we know, and what should we be doing if, let's say, let's take, for instance, heart disease, the number one killer, what do we know that we can do to prevent or help with heart disease? Okay, well, that's a perfect example, right? Okay, number one killer of both men and women in the United States, there's only one diet that's ever been proven to reverse heart disease in the majority of patients, a plant-based diet. If that's all a plant-based diet could do, reverse the number one killer of men and women, uh, then, I mean, shouldn't that be the default diet until proven otherwise? Uh, and the fact that it can also be effective in preventing, arresting, or reversing other leading killers, uh, like high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, would seem to make the case for plant-based eating simply overwhelming. But uh, eating a vegan plant-based diet, uh, no animal products at all, is very unusual. It's hard to find restaurants that do that, although it's easier than it used to be. I mean, do you eat a vegan diet? For, uh, what is it, 27, 28 years now? 27 years? Really? Yeah. Well done. And you're right. Look, it's getting easier all the time. But I think it's critical to differentiate vegan from plant-based. I mean, as a physician... These labels like vegetarian and vegan, that just tells me what you don't eat. I mean, there's all sorts. I mean, you could eat a horrible vegan diet, living off of, you know, cotton candy and, and Coca-Cola. Like, I mean, so that's why I prefer the term whole food plant-based nutrition. That tells me what you actually do eat. Oh, you actually eat your vegetables. I mean, that's really the most important thing is that we center our diets around the healthiest of foods, these whole plant foods, cutting down not only on animal products, but these processed junky foods that, you know, now there's vegan donuts. I'm not telling anyone to go out and eat a vegan donut. Mm. I've always felt if you're going to eat a donut, enjoy the donut and, and, and <laughs> you don't go vegan. Go as right, you're fat not as you... it for the health benefits. Right, right. right. Yeah. So you, you don't choose the kale donut, you choose the, you know, right, chocolate frosted. Or exactly. And then, and then go back to your plant-based uh, right. healthy and I'm, I'm so glad you made that point. Look, it doesn't matter what you eat on holidays or special occasions or your birthday. What matters, it's the day-to-day stuff that adds up. In fact, one could argue, I mean, there's actually people uh, known as social smokers, where literally they can pick up a few cigarettes a year, like at a party, and never get hooked. Never. I mean, and there's no science in the world that can tell you that they are going to suffer disproportionately compared to people who don't smoke at all. I mean, one, two cigarettes. I mean, our bodies can just bounce back from that kind of insult. Um, it's the day-to-day stuff that uh, really adds up. And in fact, within 15 years of stopping smoking, your lung cancer risk approaches that of a lifelong non-smoker. Like, isn't that amazing? Your lungs can clear out all that tar, and eventually it's almost as if you never started smoking at all, right? I mean, but the reason we tell people don't 
just smoke once or one or two. You shouldn't smoke at all is because we're afraid of the slippery slope. But look, if you know your psychology and you can, you know, go on a cruise and eat super rich, you know, uh, you know, food. But then when you come back home, you know, unless you have some, you know, serious illness, um, uh, you should be able to uh, recover quite nicely. So let's move on beyond heart disease and some of the other things that people die of and, and what they can do to not die of those things. Yeah, so, well, I mean, certainly, and again, look, if it was just heart disease, then, you know, that, that's enough, right? Unless it somehow increased the risk of all the other leading cleats just because it's by and far the biggest killer. But, yeah, then the bonus is that, wait a second, not only um, uh, does it reverse heart disease, it can also reverse type 2 diabetes and obesity and high blood pressure. These are other leading causes of death and disability. Um, and you so say, how can one diet do that? I mean, how can like a heart-healthy diet be the same thing as a brain-healthy diet and a liver-healthy diet and a kidney-healthy diet? Well, for a number of reasons. One, um, uh, you know, because it's a heart-healthy diet, it's not actually a heart-healthy, it's an artery-healthy diet. When you die of a heart attack, your heart muscle, it's, I mean, it's not your heart muscle itself, it's the arteries leading to the heart muscle, um, which can get clogged and, and, and starve your heart muscle of oxygen. Um, leading to so-called myocardial infarction. That's how most people die from heart disease. And so, so, but atherosclerosis, people don't realize, is a, is a system-wide disease. So, I mean, the same disease that contributes to erectile dysfunction is also the one contributing to cognitive decline as we age, also one uh, contributing uh, to uh, the, the abdominal aortic aneurysm, all sorts of things, stroke, um, another leading killer, um, in fact, killer number four in this country. Um, and, uh, and so by eating a artery-healthy diet, an, a, a diet that helps clean out these arteries, lowers our cholesterol, uh, no wonder that, oh, so many organ systems are helped at the same time. And really the second uh, major um, contributor is uh, these are anti-inflammatory diets. Plant-based diets in general are anti-inflammatory diets. And inflammation, low-grade inflammation, does seem to contribute to a number of different chronic diseases. There are other things like epigenetics genetics and microbiome and other things explaining why plant-based diets are so healthy. We know they are. It's just a matter of figuring out which mechanisms um, are at play the most for any particular disease. I'm speaking with Michael Greger. He is an MD and author of the book, How Not to Die, and also the How Not to Die cookbook. Every business today must not only have a website, but a great website. And now you can easily and quickly with Squarespace. Frankly, I'm really excited that Squarespace is now a sponsor because I must tell you, we're launching a new podcast in the coming months and we built the entire website for the podcast with Squarespace. And what's funny is we thought it was going to take weeks to get it just right, but it was all done in a matter of hours. It's so easy to use, so intuitive. They have these gorgeous templates created by world-class web designers that will showcase your business beautifully. And if you want to sell products or services online, Squarespace has powerful e-commerce functionality so you can start selling right away. So much is built into your Squarespace website. Search engine optimization, analytics, free and secure hosting, and 24-7 award-winning customer support. Check out squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code SOMETHING to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. That's squarespace.com and use the offer code SOMETHING. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. But you know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. 
Geico makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to geico.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit geico.com today. That's geico.com. So you own or rent your home, right? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. You know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to GEICO.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's GEICO easy. Visit GEICO.com today. That's GEICO.com. So, Michael, plant-based diets, and I, you say you've been doing it for 27 years, so it's, it's probably pretty routine for you, but to switch from a standard, typical American diet to a plant-based diet is very, very difficult. So, one, it may not be as difficult as people think. I mean, certainly going into it. Um, I encourage my patients to, you know, try it as a free sample kind of thing. So there's this wonderful um, uh, program run by an organization called Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. has this 21-day Kickstart program. Uh, it's probably 21daykickstart.org, where um, it's a free program. starts at the first of every month. You do it as a kind of a social media group, and you get daily tips and recipes and kind of motivation. And, um, uh, and hundreds of thousands of people have done it. It's a bunch of different languages. And, and it's just saying, look, give us 21 days. Let's try it out. Right. I mean, I think for uh, for many people, I mean, the thought of never eating another pepperoni pizza again—it's just unthinkable. I mean, that just stops. Exactly. Right there. Exactly. Forget. No, no. And so I say, no, 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 no. For, no, no. That's not what we're saying. First of all, it doesn't matter again what you eat on the birthday, holiday, special occasions, etc. And um, in terms of day to day, look, let's try and then see. And so people, you know, report, uh, you know, these studies where people report better energy, you know, the constipation, get, their digestion gets better, periods get better. Then there's that internal motivation. After 21 days, you're feeling so much better. In fact, people who, um, you know, young and healthy don't think they have any problems, but then all of a sudden they, you know, uh, try out eating healthier and they realize, wow, I, little did I know, I thought this chronic indigestion was just that's what happens. But no, it doesn't have to be that way. I actually feel so much better then. You have the internal motivation. It's not someone else telling you to eat some certain way. Your own body's telling you to eat this way. And then, you, you know, you couldn't get, you know, you pay, pay someone to go back to their old diet. Nothing tastes as good as healthy feels. Um, and you realize, look, healthy people have more fun. It's just like, this is, this is I feel great. But you don't know how it's going to work for you unless you give it a try. You know, I can imagine people listening to you, and, you, and you've said several times, you know, holidays are okay. Well, how many holidays are okay? Once a month? Twice a year? What's okay? Oh, well, again, it's all a spectrum. So the more you, I mean, in terms of what our bodies can bounce back from, um, uh, if once every two weeks, you know, you ate some, you know, delicious-looking pastry or something, and that helped you just stick with it the rest of the time. Like, if it wasn't for that pastry, you know, that, that little that kind of treat that you gave, you so you just would kind of fall back to, you know, to, you, you know, some, 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 you know, burger milkshake land, um, then I, I, I think one would be really hard-pressed to find any data that would suggest your body couldn't handle the once-every-two-week kind of uh, indiscretion 
Um, uh, but uh, you know what I've heard, though, is that people who do this uh, after a while, the, the, the appeal of that cheeseburger disappears. Well, it just, I mean, because your palate changes, it's really quite remarkable. There's a large body of literature, mostly in the, in the salt reduction literature, where you take people um, and you put people on a low-salt diet. In the first few days, everything tastes like cardboard. And people are like, there's no way I can live my whole life like this. But then, amazing thing happens. Your palate actually changes. I mean, our taste buds have been so deadened by getting pummeled by this hyper-salty, hyper-sweet, hyper-fatty you know, fatty diet that the processed food industry uses to kind of hijack our biological drives, that, um, that once you take that away, so you have these studies where people salt soup to taste, and then after two weeks of, not, uh, of, of, uh, of cutting down on salt, all, you give them back that same bowl of soup with the amount of salt you used to like, and it's too salty. You actually prefer lower salt soup. Um, the same thing actually happens much quicker with uh, um, taking away added sugars. Within eight days... Um, there's a study showing within eight days um, you can so kind of reinvigorate your taste buds that all of a sudden natural, whole, healthy foods taste good. Um, uh, I mean, but like even the ripest peach in the world is going to taste sour after a bowl of Fruit Loops. I mean, you just so kind of whack your poor, you know, uh, your, your poor nervous system down. But, you know, so someone comes along and sees me, you know, just eating like a, you know, a sweet potato with some cinnamon sprinkled on it or something, and they look at me as if I'm like some aesthetic monk or something. They're like, that's great that you can eat that way. I can never eat that. Like, it just, like, there's no way. I, but they don't realize, no, 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 no. If you actually eat healthy, if you stay away from this processed crap, all of a sudden your palate will change, and, and normal healthy foods like an apple will actually taste good. I mean, so that, I mean, that sweet potato to me is really sweet, delicious, fantastic, um, and, you know, like a, some sugary breakfast cereal would just be unpleasantly too sweet, unless, of course, I ate it every day and, you know, kind of overcame my, kinda one's natural aversion. Um, and so then you end up with the best of both worlds. You, it's actually delicious food, and you get to give, and you get to live longer. It's like you know uh, that that's what plant-based eating is all about. But you're right. If you kept, you know, uh, if you know you, every other day you ate a donut, you would never be able to pull your palate away um, from uh, those kind that kind of hijacking uh, by commercial interests. Uh, I want to talk about coffee because that is like the the perfect example of this week it's good for you, this week it's bad for you, and and yet it does seem to have some health benefits, but how do we know that six months from now it's going to, whoop, those studies were wrong, and, and that turns out you've been drinking too much and now you're going to die. Well, I mean, my, so in, uh, in uh, my chapters on liver disease, depression, and Parkinson's and how not to die, I discuss the benefits of coffee for the liver, mind, and brain. Uh, coffee drinkers do seem to live longer, have lower cancer rates overall, but uh, coffee's not for everyone. can worsen acid reflux disease, bone loss, uh, glaucoma, urinary incontinence. So there are populations of folks that um, uh, it's not a good idea. But bottom line, um, uh, I don't recommend drinking coffee, but uh, not because it's unhealthy for most people, but mainly just because you know every cup of coffee is a lost opportunity to drink something even healthier, a cup of green tea. So that's actually a healthier beverage. Um, but so basically, food is a zero-sum game, right? There's an opportunity cost. Everything we put in our mouth is a lost opportunity to put something even healthier in our mouth. So is coffee healthy, unhealthy? Well, compared to what? Compared to Coca-Cola, super healthy. Compared to green tea, nah, it's, it's less healthy. And the same thing can be said for any food item. Are eggs healthy? 
Compared to breakfast sausage, absolutely. Compared to oatmeal, not even close. Is cheese healthy? Better than bologna, not as good as peanut butter. I mean, it's just like, I mean, so foods aren't so much good, bad as they are better or worse. We can always try to kind of move up the scale and eat healthier at every meal. Well, what I like about your message is it's it's not either or, as you said. I mean, there are people who can't imagine going through life never having a pizza or ice cream or cake ever again. And and you're saying basically it's it's not that you never have to have it again. You just can't have it every day. And and if you eat right most of the time, the benefits are tremendous. Michael Greger has been my guest. He is an MD and author of the book How Not to Die. And there's actually a companion cookbook. It's the How Not to Die cookbook. And there are links to both of them in the show notes for this episode of the podcast. And Michael mentioned a couple of websites in the interview, and those websites are also listed in the show notes. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate it. All right. Bye-bye. Have you ever done anything really courageous? As we age, you can start to see it in your face and feel it in your bones. There are creams that claim they'll give you younger skin and energy shots that'll give youthful energy. Let's look deeper between the surface on how we counteract the effects of aging. True Niagen helps us age better by supporting the energy-generating engines that exist in our bodies, helping us restore youthful energy. Tiny repair enzymes work deep in your cells to help you recover from lifestyle routines that are hard on the body, including sleep deprivation or an intense workout or poor diet. True Niagen supports these enzymes. True Niagen is safety tested and it's backed by Nobel Prize winning scientists. Age smarter with True Niagen. Right now, new customers can save $20 on a three-month supply by going to TrueNiagen.com and entering promo code SOMETHING at checkout. Go to T-R-U-N-I-A-G-E-N.com and enter the promo code SOMETHING at checkout to save $20 on your first three-month supply. TrueNiagen.com, promo code SOMETHING. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You've likely heard me mention and recommend the Jordan Harbinger Show podcast before. And the reason I mention it is, well, yes, Jordan advertises his show here. And he does that for strategic reasons. You see, people who like this podcast are bound to like his podcast. He and I have a similar philosophy. In fact, I just spoke with him on the phone yesterday to compare some notes. Look, I really want you to give the Jordan Harbinger Show a listen. He covers a lot of topics with big-name guests like Seth Godin, Mark Cuban, uh, Kevin Systrom, one of the founders of Instagram. And Jordan's done really interesting episodes where he talks about his visits to North Korea as well as how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars being chased by the feds and the mafia. So, as you see, there's a lot of variety, but one constant is Jordan's ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. I promise you'll find something useful that you can apply in your life in every episode of Jordan's podcast. I enjoy the Jordan Harbinger show, and and I'm not saying that because he's advertising. It really is good. Search for the Jordan Harbinger show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, 
I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R. The Jordan Harbinger Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Or have you ever wished you had more courage, took more risks, wondered how your life might be different if you were more courageous? Well, Bill Treasurer is somebody who knows a lot about courage. Bill is a speaker, consultant, and author of several books, including the book Courage Goes to Work, How to Build Backbones, Boost Performance, and Get Results. Hi, Bill. Welcome. Mike, it's so great to talk to you again. So how do you define courage? I I think when we think of courageous people, we think of, you know, war heroes, but, but courage is much more than that. You're right. War heroes have courage, and astronauts have courage, and firefighters have courage. But so does a kid who steals a car at 17 years old and goes for a joyride. So courage can be applied or misapplied. It can be adaptive or maladaptive. It can be benevolent or malevolent. So courage is acting on what is right, uh, despite being afraid or uncomfortable when facing situations of pain, intimidation, or even opportunity. The trick is that it acts despite being afraid. So normally when we have some fearful situation that we're facing, if the, and sometimes appropriately so, we run away from it. Um, or we'll experience fight, flight, or freeze, where we choke in our performance. But the hallmark of courage is that we intentionally and purposefully engage with the thing that we're afraid of. All the better if you can bring some morality to it by acting on what is right instead of what is wrong. Well, I think that a lot of people look at courageous people as having no fear, that, that they can do things that I can't because fear stops me and it doesn't stop them. You know, it's, it's interesting. There's a bumper sticker, right? You'll see it on people's trucks and they'll say, no fear, no fear. Like somehow that's a good thing. I always, when I see that bumper sticker, I go, yeah, no brains. You know, fear is a necessary thing. And the truth about courage, and this is kind of interesting, Man, when you are in a courageous moment, you're not void of fear. You're full of fear, but you're acting despite the fact that you are afraid. So courage is not fearlessness. Courage is fearfulness, but doing the thing that you're afraid of despite being afraid. The fear you feel when you're thinking of doing something courageous, might it not be serving a real purpose that that maybe although this seems courageous, might also not just be physically dangerous, but might be a really stupid thing to do, but in the moment you think it's courageous. From your earliest impulses as a kid, you, are, you learn self-preservation. I mean, it is wired into your DNA. You need that. And it's like, it comes from the, the deepest part of our human psyche that goes probably all back, all the way back to you know, humans crawling out of the mud, we have the, been hardwired with this idea of self-preservation. And fear serves that purpose, so that when you see the snake, you run from the snake, so you don't get bitten by the snake, so you get to stay alive. So you need the fear button. The challenge is that when fear dictates all of your behavior, or paralyzes you, or keeps you from, uh, it, you know, sort of perceptional fear that becomes irrational and it immobilizes you. Now that fear is actually stunting your growth and and, uh, can inhibit your own development. So it's challenging because it means you have to, uh, on the one hand, we have to face fear for the duration of our life, and many times it's appropriate because it's self-preservation. On the other hand, 
we all know that fear can hold us back as a human being and limit our potential. And we have this constant striving. In fact, you know, you could say that there's a very strong, and I would argue maybe a healthy relationship between fear and courage. And in fact, if the presence of fear isn't there, then whatever the bold move that you're attempting to take really isn't courage. You have to have the presence of courage to experience, uh, the presence of fear to experience courage. So it's, it may not be clear cut, but I do believe that the human experience requires, as a human being, you have to apply your courage in fearful situations if you want to get, the, get through the human experience in a successful way and to grow and develop as a human being. It seems that confidence plays a big part in this, that the more confident you are, the more courageous you can be. You know, a firefighter running into a burning building, well, he's been trained as to what to do when he gets in there. If, if, if I were to run into a burning building, I wouldn't know what to do. So it's a lot more fearful for me to run into a burning building than someone who's been trained to do it. So, so it does seem confidence is a real important element here. You know, really every single human being has demonstrated courage, just as every uh, human being has experienced fear. And the trick is, where do you feel confident? Like, you may do something that for you is just a thing. It's like, that's not hard for me because I've got a lot of confidence with that space. But other people looking at you do the thing might be like, oh, my God, I can't believe how much courage do they have? Wow, they did that thing. But for you, it wasn't a big thing, because for you, you've got a lot of confidence in that space. But if there's an area with which you have a lot of fear and you avoid, then those same people would be looking at you going, wow, what's wrong with that person? Why are they avoiding the thing? I do that thing every day, and it's easy for me. So this idea of relativism, you know, that we judge our risks according to our fears, and what's fearful for you may be folly for me. I have a brother who's a uh, retired special agent in the DEA. And that guy, you know, he used to carry a gun on his ankle when he would go to work. And he runs and guns in the streets of Charleston, South Carolina. He started his beat up in Newark, New Jersey. The guy's a macho guy. The guy has a lot of courage in that area of his life. But he has a hard time telling me and our two sisters he loves us because that's where he feels gushy. You know, so we, we tend to avoid risks in areas where we feel vulnerable, and we tend to pursue risks in areas where we feel confident. And every single human being has both of those dimensions. So it might seem that you're better off sticking with what you're good at, but if you do that, then, then how do you grow in other areas? Well, you know, what I would say is a lot of times when we're facing a fear, our first thought is, how do I reduce this fear? which is really sort of the wrong approach, because the, the fear is what you want to do is be strong enough to withstand that fear. Um, there's a great psychologist, Dr. Michael After. He calls this the protective frame. He says you can think of it like imagine that you were, went to a zoo and you paid to see the great Siberian tiger and you go there and there's the tiger, but there's no cage. You'd run like hell and you should. But what if you went to that same zoo and saw a cage, and there was no tiger. You'd want your money back. So what Dr. After says is you need both. You need the tiger, which is the metaphor for your fear. And you want to make sure that it's a big tiger. You paid to see that tiger. But you need a strong cage, what he calls a protective frame, 
meaning a strong psychological constitution. And instead of trying to reduce the size of the tiger, what you should do when you are afraid is start doing the things that build your confidence in the face of the tiger. So, for example, if you wanted to, um, you found out you were going to have to give a presentation to your boss's boss, and you had all sorts of fear about doing this. Instead of thinking, oh, how am I going to stop being afraid? I wish I wasn't so afraid. What do I do about this fear? That's like fear of fear. That's paranoia. He says what you ought to do is, you know, talk to people who have given presentations before. Practice with your stuffed animals first. Maybe go and speak to a church group where there's a little less consequence for failure. Like, do the legwork. Practice, practice, practice. Do the legwork and preparation. And it's not that you will reduce the fear so much. You will increase your confidence. And that's what you should do when you're facing a fear, is work on taking the actions that will increase your confidence. And your, your fear will become less relevant. But there are some things people want to do where you can't really practice, like you want to confront somebody at work or, you know, you want to do something much quicker than, you know, well, let me spend the next month practicing. Mm. Yeah, I guess I would say that in that instance, it will help to have had a regimen of doing smaller, more courageous things over time, because you'll come to trust your instinct. You'll come to know you know, I've crossed these thresholds before in other ways and in other situations. And so now, yes, I've got this uh, schoolyard bully in front of me or I've got this work bully in front of me, but I am, I've confronted other bullying situations in the past. Or even if I haven't, I've confronted fearful situations in the past. And look, I'm still alive. So you have to start to rely on your accumulated history. We all cross these small thresholds of fear literally thousands of times in our life. And yet when we get to a new threshold, it always feels so unique and new to us when in fact we have a lot of our own experience to draw on of the courageous things that we've done in encountering fear in the past. So at some point you've got to sort of like rely rely and trust your instincts. When you say that people who are courageous have fear, do they have fear and and then they do it anyway? And and but often when we're fearful, when we're acting out of fear, we get that kind of uh I don't know what it is. It's that stress response where we get that tunnel vision. We 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 don't we're not operating on all cylinders. We're we're kind of in the fight or flight mode. Do people who are uh, courageous are they able to overcome that, or do they have to deal with the same limitations as the rest of us? I, you know, that's a good question. Um, and I imagine that there are some people that um, are, are better equipped somehow constitutionally um, when they move into a fearful situation. Um, even Nelson Mandela, though, talked about how afraid he was many times every day, you know, when he was locked up as a prisoner. Um, so, so even people we look to on the world stage that we think, wow, look at what a giant they are. You know, I, I, a good example of this actually is Martin Luther King. He, he writes, um, it's his last speech that he's giving. He didn't know it was his last speech. It just so happened the next day he would get assassinated. But that last night he was speaking, he said, tonight I am fearing no man. He was talking about, I may not get to the mountaintop with you. I, I may not get there with you. Um, but tonight I'm fearing no man. It was interesting to me, the wording on that, tonight. It kind of suggests that there's plenty of times that he was fearing man. But you wouldn't have thought it when he was standing at the front lines of the civil rights movement. Of course he was afraid. 
But again, this idea of relativism, you can't see it. That's, that's the other thing. You, you know, it's not always transparent to others. You know, you, not everybody gets blotchy skin when they're giving a presentation. They just might have rioting butterflies, which are invisible to other people. Um, so I, I'm not sure. Constitutionally, I imagine that, that people are different in how they experience it. Maybe there are some people that are braver than others, but even that person is going to have some vulnerable place in their life where they lack courage. Everyone has, has taken a risk and been so glad they did because look at all the great things that happened. And I think everyone has taken a risk and then later thought, you know, what the hell was I thinking? Why did I do that? And I'm wondering, is there any kind of test you can give for a potential risk for, for deciding whether to be courageous or not that will help improve your odds? I think a lot of times what we do is we simply look at it the old-fashioned way and say, hey, you know, what am I going to gain if I do this thing? And what am I going to lose if I don't, you know, if I wipe out doing this thing? And so we, we pro and con it. But I think it takes more dimension than that. So I suggest people work through five different criteria. And the first one is passion. Is this giving me, you know, does it give me energy to think about taking this risk or does it deplete my energy? The second one is purpose. Is it connected to some broader purpose? Or am I taking this because it actually can, you know, move me forward in some way towards my life goals and what I want? Uh, the third P is principles. Am I, am, by taking this risk, does it embody a set of values that I have at the core and deepest levels? Am I upholding a principle to take this risk? Um, the, third, uh, the fourth one is prerogative. Is it my own prerogative to take this risk, or am I being forced to do it because other people are telling me I have to do it? And then finally, the fifth P is profit. What will I stand to get? But it shouldn't be the first thing that you should ask. It shouldn't just be the spoils that you think you're going to get by taking this risk. I think that should be the last uh, the piece that you evaluate. You should do the others, the passion, purpose, principles, prerogative, before you get to profit. And then you will have dimensionalized your calculation and taken the risk in a much more thoughtful way. So I think it will increase your probability of the likelihood of a successful outcome, though it won't guarantee you'll be successful. I think deep down inside, most of us wish we could be more courageous. And, and well, now, and now we know how to do that. Bill Treasurer has been my guest. He is a speaker, consultant, and author of several books, including... Courage Goes to Work, and there is a link to his book in the show notes for this episode. As I'm sure you're aware, you don't have to look very hard to find relationship advice, and we've had some of the best relationship experts in the world on this program. But according to psychologist John Gottman, who is regarded as one of the leading authorities on relationships, a good relationship all comes down to two things. Kindness and generosity. That's it. Those couples who express kindness and generosity to each other and do it often have better relationships. Those who don't, don't. Here's something else Gottman discovered. While we've all heard that partners should be there for each other when the going gets rough, it turns out that being there for each other when things go right is actually more important for relationship quality. How someone responds to a partner's good news can have dramatic consequences for the relationship. On the other hand, contempt is the number one factor that tears couples apart. People who are focused on criticizing their partner 
miss 50% of the positive things their partners are doing, and they see negativity where there isn't any. Being mean is the death knell of relationships. And that is something you should know. Hey, do check us out on Facebook and Twitter, where we post even more great content than we can fit into the program. So if you like the program, you will like the stuff we post on social media. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.